Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 2A for February of 2016. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about all things X-Files, including a look of anticipation at the revival coming in just a few days, and a look back at what made this series so great. And I refer to this as episode 2A, because we are going to be talking about, like Dave said, The X-Files and The 100 in our February podcast. But there was just so much anticipation for The X-Files revival, and it was just this once-in-a-lifetime type thing, that there was just too much to fit in the February podcast. So we wanted to give it its due, talk about the background of X-Files and how it has just become this icon in sci-fi television that we had to address it separately and talk a little bit about it leading into the revival. Yeah, And it's just really going to be so interesting to see how it's received because obviously viewers like you and I, we know how great it is. But in 1993, when it debuted, there wasn't as much sci-fi fare as there is now. I mean, not even close. No. And it, actually didn't have the special effects budgets that the science fiction shows have these days. And it had the Friday death time slot (laughs) that a lot of shows die in these days, but it actually did quite well for its time and lasted 10 seasons. So can't really argue with that. All right. And if you think about it, you know, the 20 somethings now weren't even born when the show aired. So if they go back and look at season one and season two, just the, the production values are nowhere near what we have today. So you hope that doesn't put them off because obviously it is such a great show. Right. And I meant nine seasons. I was rounding up, <laughs> but anyway, so we actually have the X-Files returning to Fox uh, just a few days after this podcast is released Sunday, January 24th, 2016 is going to be the beginning of the six episodes And there's going to be the two at the beginning, right, Dave? It's going to be Sunday and then Monday. That's correct. And at least two and perhaps three of these are going to address the overarching conspiracies that began in the original series. And then the others are, interestingly, and I'm very happy about this, slated to be the traditional standalone Monster of the Week stories. And I think it's funny that I think the term Monster of the Week originated with the (laughs) X-Files. I mean, as far as I know, it did. And I wonder... Are they truly going to be monsters or are they just rather going to be paranormal stories? Exactly. And it's not even an accurate term for the old X-Files to say monsters of the week because there's all kinds of things you can address. Right. Now, I've read a couple places that the first episode, the last episode will be mythology based. But I've also read that the second episode may be, but I don't have a confirmation on that. And in fact, they've changed the airing order at least once. Yeah, there was 
some tweets that we deciphered <laughs> in terms of who was going to be in which episode, where some of the stars that were in it thought they were going to be in episode five, and it turns out they're going to be in episode two. So hopefully that won't be a bad thing. We know we always get a little bit scared when shows, especially on Fox, <laughs> right, start to shuffle things around because, you know, Dollhouse and uh, other examples that were on that network. Well, you'd like to think they've learned their lesson, and I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, one thing as this discussion goes on, obviously anybody that's listened to podcasts that Mike and I do know, I'm so anti-spoiler. So if you consider episode titles spoilery, which I can understand if you do, you might want to just tune out for a minute or two, because we're going to <laughs> at least acknowledge those titles such as they are. Episode one. My Struggle is going to air on Sunday, January 24th, followed by episode two, which will be on Monday night. And then episodes three through six will run on consecutive Monday nights, ending on February 22nd. But I think the problem with episode one is it's going to follow, I believe it's the NFC title game. So who knows when it's actually going to begin? I know it's going to drive me crazy. And that's an interesting title to start off with, My Struggle, because it immediately gets the association of Hitler's Mein Kampf. <laughs> yeah, and how can it not? But I assume it's going to be the struggle of Mulder and then the struggle of Scully because my struggle too is at the end of the six episodes, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, although, obviously, you and I do an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast and I couldn't help but think, is something going to take us back to World War II? Hmm. I don't know. But we shall see. But... As we said, episode one is going to be called My Struggle, written and directed, surprise, by Chris Carter. <laughs> episode two, which, as you mentioned, was going to be episode five, Founder's Mutation, written and directed by James Wong, who wrote 14 episodes, also has done American Horror Story and Scream Queens. Yeah, a lot of these directors have gone on to big things. Frank Spotnitz, for example, did Man in the High Castle, which I enjoyed recently. Yeah, well, they definitely brought back the A-team for this six-episode series. Uh, uh, episode three, Mulder and Scully meet the Whir Monster, written and directed by Darren Morgan, who I think both you and I were surprised how few episodes he did in the original run. Yeah, exactly. He's known as the more humorous of the writers that did some of our favorite ones that made us chuckle. And I believe it's were monster. There's going to be like a were lizard or something in this thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, he also did 15 episodes of fringe. Oh, right. That's right. Episode four home again, written and directed by Glenn Morgan, who did 14 episodes of X files. And obviously Darren and Glenn are brothers. Uh, episode five Babylon again, written and directed by Chris Carter. And then episode six, my struggle Two. Story by Chris Carter and Margaret Fearon and Ann Simon. Teleplay by Chris Carter. Okay, so interesting that the majority of the episodes, not surprising, written by Chris Carter, right? Sure. And the season premiere and the season finale. Of course. Showrunners. <laughs> Even though it's only six. Yeah, exactly. Well, obviously, it's great to see Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny back together and, you know, for X-Files fanatics, as I am and have been, I really never thought we'd see this day. At best, we hoped for a third movie. And, and for a long time, there didn't even seem to be any hope of that. 
Gillian Anderson, David Duchovny, they'd gone their own ways in their acting careers and, and both pretty successful. And you notice that there's articles out there now that talk about the fact that Chris Carter has a script already written for a third movie and has had it for a while. So why it never got produced, I don't know. But yeah, a lot of these people we didn't see that much afterwards. I mean, you and I, of course, did Continuum. So we saw William B. Davis, the cigarette smoking man more recently. But absolutely, as the elder Alex Sadler. But, you know, Gillian Anderson, I mean, I I was such an M, such a huge fan of her. So I've pretty much watched everything she's done. And she's done a number of period pieces particularly two Dickens tales, Great Expectations, where she played Miss Havisham and Bleak House. But House of Mirth, which uh, is an Edith Wharton novel, she's just spectacular. I just can't tell you how good she is in that. She's in Hannibal, of course. And have you seen The Fall, where she plays that damaged detective? I have certainly seen the promos for it, uh, mainly because, like you, I was following Gillian Anderson's career, but I never got to see it. Yeah, just really, really good. And, and obviously for me, it's short seasons. I think it's only like four, maybe five episodes in a season. Now, David Duchovny, back as Fox Mulder, are you a Californication fan? No, that's the thing. See, I talk about how we haven't seen too much of these folks. They've been in stuff. I just haven't watched them. <laughs> yeah, well, I watched all seven seasons, and he was awesome. I oh, mean, you did? It, it, oh, yeah. And he's the anti-Mulder. One of my guilty pleasure shows, but it's it's just so bad. It's just so wrong, but it's just so good. <laughs> and then, of course, he was in Aquarius, too, a little bit lesser known than Californication, but he played a 60s detective in that show as well. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> I tried. Honestly, I did. Mitch Pileggi is back as director Walter Skinner, director of the FBI. Uh, you mentioned William B. Davis before. Now, the lone gunman, Frohickey, Langley, and Byers. <laughs> How the heck are they in it? <laughs> uh, I thought they died. They appear to Mulder in a vision in the what we thought at the time was the series finale. But now I guess we'll just say it's the season nine finale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know what impact they're going to have. It could be another flashback. It could be some kind of vision sequence. Who knows? It could be. And Annabeth Gish is going to be back as Agent Monica Reyes, who she portrayed in seasons eight and nine. And I really liked her. I'm one of those people that really enjoyed seasons eight and nine. I get it. Mulder wasn't in it much at all, but it was still good. It was still X-Files. And I thought she was really good. Yeah, in fact, I'm kind of surprised and dismayed that we won't be seeing Robert Patrick back as John Doggett as kind of a bookend for her, but I'll take it. I'll take Monica if we can get her. Yeah, I think I read that his schedule just didn't work out. Yeah. Okay. Now, we do have some new actors and characters. Lauren Ambrose, who was in Six Feet Under. I don't know if you watched that. I did. I enjoyed that. Yeah. And then Torchwood Miracle Day, which didn't do really well with the critics, but I enjoyed it. (laughs) now joel McHale from community and and i love community i haven't seen them all but yeah he's going to be an interesting addition because i'm not used to seeing joel McHale in this type of role yeah so i'm looking forward to it i I really like him we have firestorm himself robbie amell (laughs) exactly from the flash and yeah we've got an actor we'll pause at the end and let the listeners try to guess we won't pause too long but he's appeared in battlestar galactica fringe The Hundred and Continuum. Who is he? One Alessandro Giuliani. Yeah. Yeah, he actually is not the only Continuum actor. Of course, we mentioned William B. Davis. Omari Newton 
is going to be in it in episode two, yeah. which was very exciting to see on Twitter from him. So, Are we going to see Alex Krychek? I haven't heard. I mean, just because he's dead, what does that mean? <laughs> he's never dead for long. Exactly. No matter what show he's in. Exactly. So, yeah, I wish we could get him in there, too. I mean, if you could get the, the lone gunman, surely you could bring Alex Krychek in somehow. <laughs> yeah. Now. One of the things that Chris Carter's always acknowledged is his debt to Kolchak, the Night Stalker starring Darren McGavin as a newspaper reporter who followed these weird, unexplained crimes that the police either couldn't or wouldn't solve. And while I didn't watch it when it aired in 1974, 1975, I did get the DVD set and I have watched it and production values, whatever, but it's really creepy. Yeah, you need a little bit of that kind of stuff in a mysterious show. I mean, you've got the Twilight Zone and other things that probably inspired that show as well. So, uh, yeah, that that was an interesting factoid that I did not know that you brought to my attention. Yeah, now, and when you look at some of the storylines, Jack the Ripper, vampires, aliens, zombies, even a succubus. Yeah, I mean, you could pretty much cover the entire gamut of stuff that sci-fi, fantasy, and horror covers these days. Yeah. Now, you know, when the show started back in 1993, the internet really was not in the average home. You know, I think it was like a, not until 1994 that I got my AOL <laughs> yeah. little floppy disk and all of that. So I used to collect and still have any magazine that had them on the cover or any kind of a story. And I went back and was paging through and looking at some of the books and one of the first things that I ran across and I'm like, oh, yeah, is that Fox, the network, not the agent, not Mulder, <laughs> did not want Gillian Anderson to play Scully. They were looking for a buxom blonde with a lot of cleavage. Huh. And Carter fought for her until the suits finally acquiesced. And obviously it's a choice that I'm sure somebody up in the higher office is glad that they listened to Chris Carter on that one. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to have the uh, cleavage going on. I mean, redheads alone, if you're just going on superficial things, should have been enough for them. But yeah, I mean, the actress herself and the chemistry they had. And there's not a whole lot of actresses, I think, that could have chemistry with David Duchovny. But she definitely had it in spades. Right. And if you haven't watched some of the talk show circuit stuff that the two of them have been doing, it's just priceless. Because in fact, I think it was Kimmel that I watched and, and asked them that he heard that they didn't get along mm -hmm. and their reactions to each other, that it was just so funny because it was so true. <laughs> and now you can tell, look, I understand they're actors. That's not lost on me, but you know, some things you can't fake and it, it looks like they really do have a good relationship now. But David Duchovny's claim to fame when he got the job as Fox Mulder was basically as the narrator for the softcore cable porn show Red Shoe Diaries. That's right. So Fox was taking a chance on both of them, I think, to a certain extent. Yeah, you mentioned the, the fact that AOL was just starting up, and I'm reminded of the Jimmy Kimmel skit that they did where they have all the old technology. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, especially the cell phones. <laughs> They've been having a lot of fun with it in the lead-up to the revival, so can't wait to actually get into the actual show itself now that all the hype has been uh, bandied about all right well we got to wait a little bit for that so why don't we get into the shows that we can talk about and my first experience with the x-files i'll know that date forevermore november 5th 1993 it was the eighth episode of season one 
and my wife had gone out with some friends and I was home alone and just clicking and, and I happened to stop on this show, The X-Files. I didn't know anything about it and I was immediately hooked. Yeah, you were an early adopter. I don't know exactly when I came into it, but it was quite late. I do remember though, that even though I had seen The X-Files when they were airing live, that it wasn't until FX started to air them one at a time each night in order. And there was like an Entertainment Weekly guide that you could follow in the magazine to get a little synopsis of each episode where I actually really got deep into The X-Files by watching it each and every night for a solid bunch of months. And that was while it was still on the air, season six or seven, I'd say. Right now, you know, we talked about binge watching already, and I'm not sure what motivated me to record them on VHS tape, but then I I just became consumed with that and made sure that I had every episode on tape. But one of the things that that we want to talk about tonight, Mike, our favorite standalone episode and our favorite mythology. So I'll go first with my standalone and then you can hit me with yours. Okay. So for me, it's the 12th episode of season three written by Darren Morgan, the war of the Copraages. And that's the one where Mulder's apartment is being fumigated. So he's sitting in his car out in the middle of nowhere, parked, staring up at the stars when a police car pulls up next to him. And the officer wants to know what he's doing there. Is he there to meet his dealer? And can he see some identification? And of course, Mulder shows him his FBI badge and asks the police officer if he knows anything about UFO sightings. And he says, oh, I didn't know the FBI followed those things. And he said, well, they don't. (laughs) And he gets a call. And what happens now is we find out that this town is beset by killer roaches. I remember this one. Yeah. So Mulder becomes immediately involved in helping this police department solve the crime. And what's really interesting is how they tell the story, because Mulder and Scully are apart. So we see Scully in her apartment and it's almost as if she doesn't know what to do with herself. At first we see her cleaning her gun and (laughs) and Mulder calls her for information and she gives it to him and it's like, well, Mulder, do you want me to come up there? Uh, Nah, Scully, you're probably right. Thanks. And then something else happens and he calls her again, but now she's giving her dog a flea bath. She gives him the information he wants. Mulder, you know, I can be up there in a couple hours. No, Scully, I've got it. I think you're probably (laughs) right. It's nothing. And then eventually something happens and she does get up there. And there's a great scene because Mulder eventually meets the entomologist, Dr. Bambi Berenbaum. And of course, she is hot wearing short shorts when Mulder first meets her. And there's some classic lines that Scully, who usually doesn't get the funny lines, gets. Well, especially since this is one of the few episodes where you get the sense that there might be some jealousy on the part of Scully. And this happens a number of times where there's just little tiny hints of flirtatiousness where Mulder is mine. You can't have him, Dr. Bambi. (laughs) Exactly. And we're going to be talking about shipping in our next episode here. That's right. And then just the classic final scene when, when Scully drives up to the warehouse, Mulder's inside, Bambi is in the car. And Scully pulls up next to her. Fox told me to stay put. Let me guess. You're Dr. Bambi. (laughs) Do you want me to come in? Scully gets up out of her car, pulls out her gun, cocks it. This is no place for an entomologist. And she goes in. Just just classic. I love this one. 
Yeah, and standalones for both of us, I think, are going to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't War of the Coprophages written by Darren Morgan? It was indeed. <laughs> because I think that's what a lot of people's favorites, even though, like you said, he didn't write a whole lot of episodes, but he really wrote some funny stuff that really made it lighthearted and fun in addition to dark and spooky and all the other moods that this show was able to incorporate. Because my standalone episode was actually Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which is this great episode that is on everyone's list. This is the one where a lot of stuff is being told subjectively as a story unfolds about an alien abduction of two young teenagers. And depending on who's telling the story, and mostly it's Scully being interviewed by one Charles Nelson Riley, who does a great job of playing Jose Chung, the author. And he's interviewing a bunch of people. And each time he interviews them, their story comes across in the episode from their point of view, even if it's warped or distorted by what they want to believe or what they think they saw. And whenever it's with Scully's point of view, you see a lot of the profanity bleeped out. So you get a lot of great dialogue saying bleeping blankety blank, especially from a... Detective Manners, did you happen to notice? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Named after Kim Manners there, the cursing uh, FBI agent. But they've also got a lot of great cinematography in this one. They have scenes juxtaposed where the hypnotist is talking to the girl that was abducted, and it's superimposed on top of either aliens experimenting on her or the military experimenting on her. And we're never sure in this episode whether or not it's alien abduction or government experimentation. And that's what's so great is that it puts the entire series under that same microscope because you don't know what the larger story is. Is it alien abduction or is it all just being made up? So I really like that aspect of it. Right, because it speaks to Fox Mulder. Is he a visionary or is he just crazy? <laughs> that's right. And of course, you get a lot of comedic turns like the guy who wrote a screenplay where there's not just aliens, but people living in the core of the earth. And Lord Kimboat is the alien that's interfering with the other aliens. And you've got some great guest appearances. The best, I think, is, of course, Jesse Ventura, who does this great dialogue delivery as a man in black. Because Mulder even says, you just deliver the your words in such a outlandish manner so that if anyone tries to relate it to someone else, they'll sound ridiculous. <laughs> and he does sound ridiculous making the uh, phrase the planet Venus sound like it's the best punchline in the world. <laughs> yep. And of course you also have Alex Trebek in a very brief cameo, but really Jesse Ventura steals the show, but what a great episode. I, I liken it to the blink episode in Dr. Who or the hush episode in Buffy, where it's just one of these standalone episodes that is its own animal. <laughs> right. And does, certainly become iconic to a certain extent. I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into the mythology arena and you know, it's really difficult to pick just one mythology episode because they're almost always linked. Yes. So I started with season two's finale episode 24 on Asazi, which then led into the blessing way and paperclip episodes one and two of season three and of course, without going into a lot of detail, this is where Mulder finds the railroad car that's buried in the desert containing the dead bodies of 
the alien-human hybrids that have been experimented on. Mulder's given the debt with secret government files proving the existence of extraterrestrial life and that there has, in fact, been a cover-up since 1947. Well, that tape... I'll tell you, that carries through most of season three, which is one of the best seasons of The X-Files. And that digital tape is, gosh, it carries over into a lot of what Alex Krychek is doing and the fears that the syndicate has with Cigarette Smoking Man. So, yeah, that's a, a great place that gets its start in Anasazi. You know, one of the things that struck me going back and watching these, yes, David Duchovny looks younger than he does now, as does Jillian Anderson. But Nicholas Lee... Looks like he's a teenager. <laughs> he does. He is super young looking in this season three. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that, that comes out of this trilogy is that Cigarette Smoking Man is truly terrified for the first and probably the only time in the series because he doesn't have possession of that tape. And we find out that Mulder's father was part of the original group conducting these experiments. You know, we just learned so much in these three episodes. You know, there's this immense underground storage facility containing medical files, including ones on Samantha Mulder and Scully. Yeah. Which was just chilling. Yeah, this season three, because my uh, mythology episodes I'm going to talk about in a minute are also from season three, was packed full of reveals. And, and that's one of them. Yeah, the ongoing story of Samantha Mulder and the motivation for Fox Mulder to get started on the X-Files to begin with. Well, yeah. And then we learn that his father, William Mulder, gave up his daughter instead of his son to appease those that he worked for. It was as if the powers that be knew that this was so sensitive. We need something to hold over you to make sure that you stay within the parameters of what we're asking you to do. So he gave up his daughter. Yeah, I got the impression that everyone in the syndicate had to make some sort of sacrifice like that. Right. And there is a scene in the series that, that shows that. Right. So yeah, that was a great choice. And I'm glad you brought it up because it does include that digital tape, which really figures into my choice as my favorite mythology episode. And again, it is a two-parter because you can't pick a really good mythology episode without it being multiple parts. And mine is episode 15 and 16 of season three, Piper Maru and Apocrypha written by Frank Spotnitz along with Chris Carter. And this is actually also involving the digital tape sort of in an oblique way, because one of the things that Mulder almost gets his hand on with the help of the lone gunman <laughs> is that digital tape that Krychek now has a hold of. He's persona non grata because he killed, was it because he killed Mulder's father that he became an outcast with cigarette smoking man because he didn't do that with authorization, something like that, where he had to then take the tape and start selling secrets on the black market just in order to stay alive and, and keep hidden. No, you mean Krychek? Krychek. Yeah. Well, Krychek was supposed to kill Scully and he killed her sister by mistake because that's what it was right, because her sister was at Scully's apartment. Yeah. I got them mixed up. Yeah. It's not the William Mulder part that was troubling. It was the, Scully's sister that Krychek became an outcast for. So if that hadn't happened, none of this would really have been put into play. And I just love this from the standpoint of Krychek being a victim of his own hubris, really, because he has made himself visible by selling these secrets and the black oil, which is really the crux of the whole alien 
conspiracy to begin with, because it took me a long time to figure this out, where there are just so many aliens. You've got shapeshifters, you've got the greys, you've got the guys that uh, seal their face off to prevent the black oil from infecting them, and all kinds of other aliens. But the black oil is the common thread between them all, according to what we find out in the series finale of of season nine. So this is where it got its start. It got released from that plane on the bottom of the ocean and finally ends up in Krychek himself, who is able to get the tape to Cigarette Smoking Man as a bargaining chip, basically to get his parasite, his black oil infection, to the spaceship that it needs to get to in order to basically get back home and get back on its mission after having been out of commission since World War II. So it really brings not only a lot of the mythology full circle, but it brings a great ending to Krychek, who was then trapped in that missile silo for a long time. We thought he was gone at that point, that he was never coming back. But of course, he does later on. Well, one of the problems when you try to prepare a podcast for a show that ran for 202 episodes, (laughs) you can't watch them all. So I think a lot of us watched the 10 that Chris Carter deemed essential. I went back and watched the last two episodes of season nine. And one of the interesting things that that I found there is that it opens at Mount Weather. Yeah. (laughs) The hundred, anybody? Exactly. Especially since we're going to be talking about X-Files and the hundred in the same podcast. That was an interesting thing to see flash up on the screen at the very beginning of the episode. Exactly. And Mulder reappears, heads into the mountain with the other government officials. Uh, We see Adam Baldwin, who played Jane in Firefly, and he appears briefly in episode 19 until Mulder sends him hurtling to his death. But yeah, he was only mostly dead. Well, now I haven't seen all of it of season nine. Didn't uh, Doggett seem to imply that this guy was around for their discovery of the whole super soldier program to begin with. So he's probably in a lot of other episodes, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Now Mulder and Scully are in a Roswell, New Mexico motel room as the series ends. (laughs) Oh gosh. We know that's not where they end up, but (laughs) now the second movie I want to believe, and you know, it's one of those films that's been criticized a lot. And Chris Carter has said that with this second movie, They really only had a budget to produce a standalone story, even though he wanted to return to the show's mythology. And, you know, I think it's just kind of unwarranted, this criticism. The expectations are so high, and and that's what I wonder about the show now, these six episodes. The expectations are so high. For a lot of people, it's going to be almost impossible to succeed. And, you know, the lack of mythology caused many to discount the character development that we do see in the film. And going back and watching it again, it really is good because both Scully and Mulder have to face their own demons related to the nine years that they've spent together, as she says, in the darkness. Well, especially because you're mentioning the second movie right after just talking about the series finale, it really does bring a lot of the discussion that they had in that hotel room at the end into a larger light. Yeah. Sure. The issue of faith and, you know, how Mulder is fingering her cross necklace there at the end. I mean, all that is a really big part of that second movie. Right. And as a couple, which obviously they are, I guess, at this point, she just can't live that way anymore. And Mulder doesn't know any other way to live. And as much as anything in this film, their relationship is at stake. You you mentioned Scully's faith as she struggles to save that boy with the incurable disease. And it's like her faith in God, her faith in Mulder. And I just found that fascinating. And I think it's, I didn't really see it 
the first time I watched the movie. And it had been a number of years since I'd watched it again. But I, I think it's a really good film. Yeah, and especially coming on the heels of the end of season nine where Scully is really torn up about having given up their son. Whereas Mulder, you mentioned how he doesn't know any other way. He almost takes it in stride because this is life for him. Not to mention the fact that we just haven't seen him for so many years when he finally appears there in the series finale. So it makes sense. I mean, it makes total sense across that movie. So I think we're going to get probably more of that. Uh, The fact that their relationship was kind of severed by the choices they had to make and the way that Mulder lives his life. So I think they would be well served to play more with that in these six episodes coming up. Right. But what I love is the credit sequence at the end of the second movie. Oh, you know, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're out in the water, you see the shadow of a helicopter on the water. And, and yeah, this is weird, weird. And then you see Mulder and Scully in the rowboat rowing to a tiny island in the middle of who knows where and <laughs> what the heck is that what is right. it supposed to mean well i'm assuming it means that they live on this island because they're rowing so leisurely she and she's wearing a bikini mm-hmm. they're clearly already there i'm assuming the helicopter probably just drops off supplies i wasn't sure if it was just supposed to be taken symbolically somehow i really wasn't sure what to make of that that ending scene of course, that begs the question, then, how can they afford to live on this island and have, <laughs> that, have that stuff drop to them? But either way, it'll be interesting to see how they handle that, you know, and, and whether or not we'll get mention of their son. Yeah, I, I hope they do, actually. But you never know, because I think the movies kind of pushed past a lot of that, what was addressed in the series itself. So I don't know if we're going to get back to that or not, but... One person that might be able to help us out here, Dave, is an expert that has been around from the very beginning online with the fan base, and that's Matt Allaire. We spoke with him about his experience with the X-Files through his website, xfileslexicon.com. So let's take a listen to our interview that we had with Matt about his visit to the premiere in L.A., among other things, and see what his favorite episodes are as well. All right. Well, Matt Allaire is the proprietor of the X-Files Lexicon. That's at x-fileslexicon.com. And he also writes stories about the X-Files for Den of Geek. And his expertise for this show runs very deep as his website has been around for over a decade. So he's interviewed a ton of people connected to the show. And he just got back from L.A. where he attended the X-Files revival premiere. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Matt. Thank you. So tell us about it. What was it like to attend the premiere last week? That must have been pretty surreal after all this time. Oh, the premiere was great. Yeah, it is always really surreal to have an opportunity to do that. And, and Fox and, and everybody is so gracious to have invited me. It went really well. I enjoyed seeing the, the, the first episode. And then I did a bunch of interviews and the reception was really terrific afterwards. And it felt, you know, watching the first episode, it felt really good. I'm going to be posting my review um, on my website in the next uh, couple of days. We're just, you know, editing it, and it had to be approved by Fox and all that stuff. So we're close to having it up. Right. Now, you said you really liked it. Was the fan reaction pretty much like yours? Well, I mean, I really don't know. I know that it debuted over at Comic-Con, and so there were a lot of fans that saw it there, and there was a second showing in L.A. like a month later, and the reaction has been from what I can tell, it's been pretty positive, you know, but you never know with these things because 
you know, I can't make predictions as far as how other people are going to react because, you know, different fans take different things out of the X-Files to begin with. So um, <laughs> That's for sure. You just don't know. So tell us about this website that you've had over the years, especially in its heyday. Uh, it must have been something else where you had to keep it updated all the time. And then during the movies, but then there was this seven-year gap between then and now. Did you expect a resurgence of interest, and do you think there will be with the new series coming out? Well, yes. I started the website in 2005, so I actually you know, wasn't exactly there during its heyday. But I launched the website in the summer of 2005, with really very little expectations, we I was started with like a dozen pages, and the quality of it was was good enough to where I started building a following, and for various reasons I was able to network with Frank Spotnitz and through him Chris Carter's circle and and whatnot, and and they were very supportive, and you know we've been very blessed with the kind of people that have come onto the website. I mean, there's a lot of key figures that are part of the X Files community that have come on board and you know, contributed to the site in one form or another. And it's been amazing. There's always some new face comes around that really helps the website out. All right. Well, Matt, you know, an article in Blue Book Magazine tells us you were involved in the DVD extras for the 2008 film, I Want to Believe. That had to be really cool. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was really amazing. Um, what happened was Frank's uh, spotness assistant, uh, Jenna, contacted me and asked me if I wanted to be involved and of course I jumped on it and I had two other staffers from the website at the time, you know, help out and we were connected to not only Fox but uh, this other company, uh, Trailer Park. And then we were the, you know, consultants and researchers for the historical timeline that you can find on the Blu-ray of I Want to Believe. And so we, we had like about less than around two weeks to go through thousands and thousands of pages of spreadsheets and, and whatnot. And we actually did write some of the material that's in there, like the, the prehistory timeline stuff, the stuff that I wrote uh, in there. And it was amazing. It was, uh, it was totally a shock when the opportunity came around. Now, we're going to ask you about your favorite episodes in a minute, but uh, just from the website standpoint, what was your favorite interview that you did over the years of X-Files Lexicon? Um. It's hard to say. I, you know, Bob Goodwin. That was such a um, amazing interview because he gave so much as far as what he was willing to reveal. Because with the X Files, it was always been tricky because for so long they wanted to cultivate a mystique. So they've been very careful about what information they shared, and so that's always been the challenge with the website is being able to coax talent to reveal a little bit more than you would normally, you know, get. But you know, that's probably one of my favorite. Um, Every time I do an interview, it's a learning curve. There's always something I learn from doing the interviews because uh, you never know what you're going to get. And then because I have an interest in the film and because I have a background in that, I always feel like it's additional schooling for me. I'm always learning something new by talking to everybody that has been involved with the show. All right. Well, Dave and I earlier in the podcast revealed our favorite standalone episode and our favorite mythology episode. So do you want to Give this a try and see if you can uh, narrow it down to just one for each category. I'll try. Um, <laughs> as far as a standalone, I'm a huge Darren Morgan fan. and Yes. <laughs> and Clyde Bruck Bruckman is probably my all-time favorite of the standalone episodes. That was my second choice. Okay. <laughs> 
And as far as the mythology, um, uh, Heronvolk is probably one of my favorites, partially because it sort of lays down this idea of Motor starting to cast a lot of skepticism about what he's been told and, and whatnot. And I thought it was just such a fascinating episode. Well, that's cool because now Dave and I have two different episodes from each other and you also picked completely different ones. And of course, with as deep of a catalog as X-Files have, that's, that's easy to do. Yeah, 202 episodes. What, <laughs> what shows do that anymore? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, can I share with you my absolute favorite moment? Sure. Okay, it's from Paperclip. And it's the scene where uh, Director Skinner is telling off CSM, you know, with the Albert Hofstein and the, that whole <laughs> yeah. thing. That, that's, I think that was such a cathartic moment for the fans to sort of see that whole thing play out. And also it sort of, it sort of hints that the groundwork has been laid for the syndicates being undermined and, and whatnot. So, Yeah, I have to agree. Right. And I couldn't narrow my mythology down to one, but the trilogy with paperclip as the third episode it was mine uh, just outstanding indeed that's my my problem is um i, I love the first four seasons so much that it's really hard for me to pick you know absolute favorites but even a, a week exiles episode is still better than a lot of the other television that was airing at the time amen yeah i can't tell you how many times i've said that <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. It was very enlightening to hear someone who has been with the show from the very beginning before podcasts were really popular or even possible. So it's great to hear from someone who was around on the web in the fan base at the time. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Well, that was a great interview. I'm glad to hear that Matt also chose some uh, Darren Morgan <laughs> standalone episode and Season three, Dave, I'm telling you, that was the key season. Yeah, and, and again, when you talk about a labor of love, I mean, my goodness, any X-Files fan has to check out his website. That's right. Oh, and speaking of checking out websites, we mentioned earlier about Chris Carter's Essential 10. And if you want to hear a podcast that just discusses the 10 episodes as they lead into the revival, check out goldensprawlmedia.com. They have a podcast called We Still Believe, that goes through each of those 10 episodes as a self-contained podcast. And then they're going to be podcasting about all six episodes as well. Uh, and then Dave and I, of course, are going to be podcasting about, I guess, by the time we do our February podcast, how many episodes will have aired? Two or three? Uh, yes. Somewhere in that range. <laughs> right. So we'll talk about our first impressions in that podcast and give our impressions of where it might be headed from there. So hopefully everyone will be enjoying it at that point. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity 2A, episode 2A. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and we'll continue into part 2B. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And we'll be back before too long to talk more about the X-Files when the new episodes start rolling out. And we'll also be talking about The 100, which will have started by then as well. But... In the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud and Stitcher. iTunes and TuneIn will be coming soon. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just email scififidelity at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening. We will see you in just a few weeks.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.